Hey, big listeners. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Big Listen. Uh, I have a question for you. Have you tried the NPR One app for your phone, tablet, or phablet? If not, you need to get on that. Because on NPR One, you can listen to news and stories from your local station and find shiny new gems to make your commute slightly less awful. And yes, that is possible. There's so many hand-curated podcasts and stories on NPR One, and they're always ready when you are. So find NPR One in your app store. Do it. Now. Okay. Hello. Please state your name after the tone, and Google Voice will try to connect you. Lauren Ober. This week on The Big Listen... I'm pretty excited to talk to one of my favorite up-and-coming podcast hosts. Hello. Hi, is this Nate? Yes. Hey, Nate, it's Lauren. How are you? I am good. Hey, Nate, can you hold on one second? I'll call you right back. I sure can. Okay, thank you. Bye. So I called up Nate to get some tips on podcasting. This guy's been in the hustle a little longer than me, so I figured that he could help a slightly less experienced host out. But, like a doofus, I couldn't get the recording to work. Hello? Hi, it's Lauren again. I'm sorry, I messed, I messed up, so I had, to, I, had to, I had to fix it. We do that all the time. You, you make mistakes too? Yeah. Really? Really. How do you how do you fix them when you make the mistakes? Well, I don't fix them. My dad does. Oh. <laughs> this is your host, Nate. And I'm very, very, very excited for another episode of the show about science. <laughs> Did I mention Nate is in first grade? He's also the host of the show about science. Well, I was visiting my dad's office, and I said, I want to make a podcast. And then my dad said, okay, what do you want to call it? I said, the show about science. And then he said, okay, let's get started. Um, that seems like the easiest process ever. Do you know how long it took to name our show? Like, two months. It took a month for you to plan it out. <laughs> Two butts. Ay, ay, ay. is right. But we have a brand spanking new show now. You are listening to the rewired, freshly spackled broadcast about podcasts. The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of. And we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Now, I think it's fair to say that podcasting isn't exactly standard elementary school fare. But then Nate isn't your average tot. What about radiometric dating? He has real scientists with real PhDs on his shows. And he asks them about things like radiometric dating. Radiometric dating. Oh, I have no idea what that means. Hey, guys. I'm very excited for another episode of Show About Science. This is your host, Nate. Today, my guest is Duncan, and we're going to talk about G-I-L-O-G-I. It's got to work. Get it? Work. Let's get this show started. Oh, yeah. Boop, 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 boop.
We'll hear more from Nate later in the broadcast. But now we're going to check out an equally smart podcast. It's called Historically Black, and it's a new show celebrating the opening of the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture here in Washington, D.C., which is a mouthful. The museum is amazing, so you should go. Please stay in your seats. Our staff will notify you when it's time for your group to approach the museum and enter. Before the museum opened in September, it collected thousands of artifacts and everyday items that told the story of the African-American experience. Now, the folks behind Historically Black wanted to try something similar in digital form. So they asked people to submit photos of objects on Tumblr. The object that I submitted is a picture of my grandmother walking down the street in Hampton, Virginia, on her way to Langley Airfield, where she worked as a human computer in 1943. Historically Black, the podcast, turns those submissions into audio stories with a menagerie of well-known hosts, including actor Keegan-Michael Key and author Roxane Gay. The show is a collaboration between American Public Media and The Washington Post, where our new pal Veronica Tony is a digital editor. And she's one of the main producers of Historically Black. Veronica, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you for having me. So you basically crowdsource this. You ask people, um, submit things that you care about. Were you surprised at all about the feedback that you got or the response that you got? Yeah, it's been really cool. So one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that we wanted an object. And so we ended up getting a couple of items like a bill of sale from um, a slave owner. We ended up getting a slave doll. We got a record collection. Speaking of the record collection, that was one of the images in on the Tumblr that I really liked, that it's something that is so everyday, but for for that person was very meaningful in the context of black history. Right. And the great thing about that collection that I really love is she talks about how each person in their family submits an album. So hers, I think, was Tupac. And you're just like, that's Mm -hmm. so, you know, (laughs) 90s current. And then her grandmother's was like a jazz album. And so you also get like a really good sense of the times that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything that anyone submitted that kind of surprised you or that or that really delighted you? I'll make it easier for okay. you. <laughs> I will, I'll tell you about my favorite submission um, was a woman who submitted her family's black sand and Christmas tree topper. <laughs> and you can't, you laugh because it's funny. You're like, oh, man. But I really identified with that being a black woman from, you know, a suburban town in the Midwest. And my parents were those parents that we had the black sand and Christmas cards and the black sand and tree toppers and all of that. And so I totally identified with their story of growing up in a predominantly white area and your family really trying to make you not feel like the outsider. The photo is amazing. Amazing too. It's like it's it's like a little like tchotchke-ish. Yes, exactly. But, but also like it clearly was something that had meaning for yeah. her. And it's always they're always a little like oh man, tongue in cheek. But then you're like okay, I I can laugh at it, but yeah. I also appreciate it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so one of the objects that was submitted that actually ended up making it uh, into podcast form was the photo of a woman's grandmother who was a human computer, which I thought was amazing. And it's this 
African-American woman. She looks kind of stern. She's wearing like a heavy coat and carrying a book. And if you looked at it, it without context, you'd be like, so what? You know, it's like a woman walking down the street. She's carrying some stuff. Big deal. But it, it turns out that that woman was one of what they call these human computers. Why did you guys pick that to profile in the podcast. Miriam Harris Mann, Mann is the woman walking down the street. And we were just fascinated because most of us had not heard the story either. You know, a black human computer, she's at what will become NASA. And all of this kind of started after World War II when they needed to get more people into NASA to do the computing um, because there were no computers at that time. <laughs> so they had people. This is the story of the human Computers. A human computer was a person that computed the math for the engineers, and they had a number two yellow pencil and a slide rule. That was it. That's Miriam Harris. She and Duchess are going to tell us the story of our main character, Miriam Mann. She, the second Miriam, the grandma, was recruited to make mathematical calculations for scientists and engineers at Langley Airfield in Hampton, Virginia. America had just joined the fight against Japan and Germany. Now, because so many men and women served in the military or worked in defense factories, there was an acute labor shortage across the country. Now, at the Langley Airfield in coastal Virginia, people were working 24-7 on top-secret warplane projects. Computing numbers? That was considered drudgery. It's women's work. Racial discrimination meant the computing jobs were just for white women. Until the war. Well, they were recruit for educated, colored ladies to come and do this computer work. And she heard about it because we lived on a college campus where my daddy was a professor. The campus she just spoke of was Hampton University, one of the nation's oldest historically black colleges. Now, Langley Field, it was just across town. Until World War II, Mary's mother was a stay-at-home mom. But the computing job really intrigued her. It involved making a lot of complex mathematical calculations. And she was a college graduate with a degree in chemistry and math. So here was an incredibly rare chance to be a professional mathematician. So one of the physical items that you have, which is really remarkable, actually, uh, when, when you think about it, is a man's bill of sale from when he was enslaved. My name is James McKissick, and the object that I submitted was a slave deed of sale for my great-great-grandfather. I mean, it's like a receipt yes. that you would get for anything that you purchased. That story is really remarkable. And this is the one that, you know, we were all just in awe of. So James McKissick actually submitted this photograph of a bill of sale of his great-great-grandfather. And in it, it tells the date he was sold. And the family had actually gotten a photocopy of it and they you know had passed it around each member has a photocopy of it and it ends up being we sort of had them track it down in Tennessee to find the original copy a lot of people commented that they were sad when they read it you know how poignant it was 
And those were the exact opposite feelings from what I had. To me, it it did not make me sad. It made me appreciative of this person generations ago who without him, I would not be here today. For many African-Americans who try to map their family trees, the branches stop short when it comes to slavery times. Families of European origin can often rely on a lot of different documents to trace their lineage. There are birth certificates, land deeds, military service records, immigration papers, and census results. They can use old letters and diaries and portraits to get a sense of their forebears. But historian Jessica Johnson of Johns Hopkins University says that Black families often have to piece together fragments of information from bills of sale or slave inventories. And these can be cold, unhelpful documents. What you have are just the description of of people and of of bodies. Um, Negro girl, Negro woman, Negro man. Um, The other reality is that even names change a lot over the course of of an enslaved person's life. Their name might change two or three times depending on the owner's desire to change the name, you know, And, and that's a difficult reality to face when you're facing the documents. According to family records, Wilson was born around 1815 in Virginia. His father was also his owner, a white man named William Wilson Wood. Wilson's mother was a slave named Mary. One of the items that you guys feature on the podcast, I have some slight knowledge of. Um, So I was in Washington uh, at the time of the Million Man March, and to think that there would be a million black men marching on Washington was really remarkable at that time. And you guys do an episode on this photo that a woman submitted from when her dad went to the Million Man March. Yes. So Camille Washington submitted this photo, which is the commemorative poster that they handed out or they purchased, actually, at the Million Man March in 1995. And it had hung in her dad's den in Memphis, Tennessee, for, you know, her whole childhood. And Mm -hmm. she so that she would kind of ask him stories about it, but never really like, you know, as all teenagers do, you're kind of like, okay, whatever, dad. (laughs) Um, And so when this came about, you know, she now lives in New York and hasn't been home for a while, but she it immediately, she said, brought to mind this photo. I don't remember my dad going to the march, but I do remember the care with which he had the poster framed and had it hung in this place of prominence in his den, which you have to imagine my dad's den. It's like, you know, full 70s, like wood paneling, and it's his room. It has his fish tanks. He has this, you know, rocking chair that he sits in every night and polishes his shoes. It's just part of who my dad is somehow. And anytime I was ever, you know, called to be disciplined for something or my dad just wanted to talk to me or any, you know, when I came home from school, my dad was always sitting in that den and that photo was always, always there. Now, Veronica, I'm going to ask you to get personal for a second. Okay. Um, No, if you had to submit an item from your family to this project, do you have an idea of what it would be? 
You know, this has been something that I have been racking my brain, asking my parents about all <laughs> summer as we've been working on this. And the one item I really wanted, my mother does not know where she put it. <laughs> so I have not submitted to the Tumblr yet, as I call her weekly to ask her to find it. Um, but it's actually a... Um, it's a small necklace pendant mm-hmm. from my grandmother who she was um, a Delta Sigma Theta mm-hmm. in, her sorority, in that sorority. And she went to historically black college, um, Lane University, and she ended up dying when I was very young. Um, and so my whole life, my great grandmother and everyone used to tell me these stories about her and how proud she was to be a Delta. And they would show me this necklace that she used to wear and never take off. And I was never allowed to wear it. It has been <laughs> in a jewelry box. And one day when I am old and responsible, I am in my 30s now. And I am still not allowed to wear this necklace. Um, and so that was my item because it's just one of those things that people always talk about and tell you about. Right. Now you just need mom to find exactly. it. Exactly. I think she knows where it is and she's still just not telling me. She Because she's worried. Yes. She still doesn't trust you. Exactly. I thought I had gained some trust in my years, but no. <laughs> what do you hope people take away from Historically Black? You know, I think we really just want people to take a look at the things that they pass every day and see, you know, the history and the meaning and how all of those things that we choose to surround ourselves with really hold a lot more meaning. It's not just stuff. Well, um, the podcast is great. It's really fun to have those celebrity hosts, and it's yeah. really fun to hear the stories of everyday people with these incredible objects. Um, Veronica Tony, digital editor for Features at The Washington Post, thank you for hanging out with us in the studio here on uh, The Big Listen. Thank you so much for having me. Veronica Tony is one of the producers of Historically Black, a new podcast from American Public Media and The Washington Post. Now, I'd say that chat went pretty well, but I think Nate, my new favorite six-year-old, might have some advice for the next interview. So tell me what your interviewing strategy is. How do you get these folks to talk? I get these folks to sometimes talk because, like, basically almost all of them are a big, big, big big fan of my show. Oh. Like, Santa is a gigantic fan of my show. Wow. I don't know if I have any gigantic or big, 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 big fans. Now, if you are a fan of The Big Listen, or you have some interviewing tips for us, or really any other tips, Drop us a line. We're at biglisten at wamu.org. Do you want to know my favorite tip? Don't stand up in a canoe. I'm such an old dad. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll chat with perhaps the most anti-sports radio sports podcaster 
about the intersection of sports and politics. I really do think you had a generation of sports writers who were trained and conditioned to police athletes and keep sports and politics separate and harangue athletes who dared speak out about issues. That's coming up as The Big Listen continues. Stay tuned. This is NPR. Hey, friend. Before we get you back to The Big Listen, I wanted to let you know that Sunday, October 9th, is a big day here in the U.S. It is the next presidential debate. And the following morning, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them instead. Like magic, they will have new podcast episodes the morning after every debate, which is amazing. So you will know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or yoga. Whatever your morning routine is, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it because you deserve it. So check them out on the morning of October 10th after the presidential debate and subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. Hi, I'm Jackie McCarthy, and I live in Arlington, Virginia. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a triathlete and always on the bike or running. And uh, I'd like to recommend You Must Remember This, which is the secret and forgotten history of Hollywood from, say, the silent film era to the end of the studio system in the 1960s. Basically, this is the era of the movies that your grandmother used to watch. At the close of World War II, Humphrey Bogart was Warner Brothers' most valuable star. He was in his late 40s and newly married to Lauren Bacall. Stories are amazing. It's it's impossible to even imagine Hollywood coming up with a lot of these stories of uh, redemption and tragedy and uh, illustrations of how movies reflect our culture and our politics. And uh, you should check it out. Thanks. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know what's your favorite podcast du jour. Call us on the pod line and leave a message with your recommendation, just like our pal Jackie did. Just say, hey, Lauren, I'm blah, blah, blah from XYZ Place, and lately I've been listening to Fill in the Blank Podcast, and here's why I love it. The number is 202-885-POD1. That's 202-885-7631. Then we'll put your recommendation on the radio and all your friends will hear it and want to be you. Now, if you think about sports radio, this is probably what comes to mind. You suck, Dan Snyder. You suck, Mike Shanahan. And you suck, Washington Redskins. And you sucked for over a decade. And you embarrassed us last night. Our next guest broadcasts about sports, too. But it could not sound more different. Yeah, I, that's my question. Is what, what do you think about the current state of civil liberties and open discourse in this country? Dave Zirin is the sports editor of The Nation magazine. That's the politically progressive publication that, prior to Dave, didn't really do sports. Dave is also the host of Edge of Sports from Panoply. Dave Zirin, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. It is great to be here. I'm so excited because I go on radio shows and TV shows a lot to talk about sports 
but this is the first time anyone's ever asked me about my podcast. So I'm like tickled pink. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to talk about sports, like, because okay. that's what you do. <laughs> but, but, but I think that I am interested in uh, the idea of having a, a sports podcast that doesn't sound anything like sports radio. Right. Uh, and, and I consciously. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, how did you get into this this business? For me, it started just growing up in New York City, just a colossal sports fan, never thought about politics whatsoever. And then in college, there was a basketball player named Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. 31 in a row this year for Abdul Raouf at the free throw line. He played for the Denver Nuggets, who made the decision that he wasn't going to come out uh, for the national anthem before games. And you know, this was before, obviously, social media, Twitter, all that stuff. So what it meant for those of us who were interested in this story was we would like meet in uh, the dorm lounge to watch SportsCenter at 7 p.m. every day. Like, what's the latest? Hello and welcome from World Headquarters. It's the big show. And alongside my tag team partner, Dan Patrick, I'm Keith Olbermann. Coming up on Sports Center, the rest and they'd be like, Raouf spits on the flag, booyah, Dan in it, Dan in it, and we would just be watching. And I remember watching this and hearing one of the talking heads say that Mahmoud Abdul Raouf must see himself as one of those activist athletes, like Billie Jean King or Muhammad Ali. And I was like, activist athlete, what the heck is that? And what I came to see was that there was so much sports history that informed real history, but it's written out of the history books, like the role of Jackie Robinson in the civil rights movement, the role of Muhammad Ali in the formation of the Black Panther Party, the role of Billie Jean King in the passage of Title IX, the role of Martina Navratilova in the modern LGBT movement. Like These are things that I were just never discussed as walking hand in hand. So I started like digging into it and looking into it. And then that, of course, had me thinking like, well, shoot, if people, if, if sports informed politics in the past, well, doesn't it stand to reason that it's informing it in the present, but we're just not talking about it? So you have basically carved out this niche for yourself, right, where this intersection of sports and politics, where a lot of sports writers don't go. And I wonder, I guess, like, why do you think that we don't talk more about politics and social justice in sports? Well, fortunately, I do think it's changed in the last, gosh, you could even call it the last couple of years because of social media, because of very brave athletes who've stood on issues ranging from Black Lives Matter to LGBT rights. And I think that's changing the discussion. But you did have a lot of sports writers willing to talk about social justice issues in periods of social unrest like the late 60s and early 70s. And then something very curious happens. You had this explosion of sports as a big business with the explosion of cable television, uh, the explosion of free agency in sports, the explosion of salaries, the explosion of media as big business. All of these things happen side by side with a major drop in social struggle. And with that, I really do think you had a generation of sports writers who were trained and conditioned to police athletes and keep sports and politics separate and harangue athletes who dared speak out about issues. We have such an amazing show this week. This is our NCAA show, but it's less about March Madness than about how to stop the madness of March. We are going to speak to the most prominent sports sociologist to ever walk the earth. The author of the seminal 1969 text, Revolt of the Black Athlete, Dr. Harry Edwards. What are the immediate reforms that you put your pen to to make the system a little more just? Well, the first thing I would do is to disband the NC2A. 
he's sharp as nails and he brings and informs his answers. He's not just like the NCAA is exploitative. He brings just a whole history about how to explain why that's the case. If you look at some of the history of how some institutions have been treated, it's tragic. The mm-hmm. NCAA needs to be dismantled. They are running, as I stated in 1967, a plantation structure of organization that serves no one really except them and to some extent the major institutions that constitute their constituency. I know that uh, you had Martina. I feel yep. like we don't even need to use her last name. But you had Martina Navratilova on your Dream. show, uh, and which was amazing. And I just want to say before we start talking about that, I just want to say thank you for treating male and female sports equally, and thank you for being fair oh. in your coverage of sports. Well, it's because I love women's sports. I mean, it, it's not. Uh, done out of duty or out of some sort of uh, social justice imperative. I mean, we're all a product of our times. And I really do think I had the good fortune to grow up in the 1980s, which is not a sentence that's usually said, given how (laughs) awful the 1980s were in so many respects. But the good fortune in that you had the first generation of women athletes who were able to benefit from the existence of Title IX come to age in the 1980s. And you had a sports media that, and this is provable, was much less sexist in the 1980s than you had going into the 90s and the 2000s. Our guest this week is a sports politics legend, one of the greatest tennis players to ever walk the earth, and someone who has never been shy, whether in the 1980s, 1990s, or today, to speak about her politics or openly live her truth as a proud LGBT woman. We're talking about the person who has won more singles and doubles titles than anyone in tennis history, someone who over one five-year stretch won 97% of every match she played. Her name is Martina. Navratilova. As I said to Martina in the interview, being really young and just seeing her body on the court and her musculature, and I've I've wanted to ask her this for 30 years, and it was such a (laughs) thrill to do so. I was like, were you conscious of your body as a political act unto itself? Not at all. You know, my mom told me to cover up my arms since I was little because I was always muscular. (laughs) So it was about uh, trying to be feminine, uh, which didn't come easily to me. Not naturally. I think of myself not as a obviously feminine female, but uh, not not butch either. I was kind of in between and uh, my body was what it was. And I didn't enhance it for any reason other than to be a better tennis player. Uh, But I didn't not do it either because I didn't want to look a certain way because nowadays I'm hearing some of the women players don't want to get in the gym and get stronger because they don't want to look more muscular than they are. Mm. Uh, And I'm thinking, that's crazy. You know, you're a a female athlete. Um, Do what you need to do to be the best tennis player you can be, which is exactly what I did. And Mm. uh, that was that. Right. So so you think some players, even still in 2016, are thinking about their aesthetic yeah. as a certain type of women over their ability yeah. to train? Yeah. Well, they're saying it. So it is a fact. It's not an opinion. It's what they're saying. But, you know, it's okay to each its own. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, as I say, or whatever bakes your cookies. 
I think one of the things I love about your show is that you have some non-traditional folks on. Yeah. And that... Um, I'm so glad th- you're saying this, by the way, because that's been such a on-purpose yeah. thing with the well, show. Well, because I think when you listen to, to sports radio, um, it's a lot of men shouting about football, baseball, basketball. But I think that, you know, like in a recent episode, you had uh, you had a professional wrestler who is, in addition to <laughs> having had a a long and illustrious professional wrestling career is also an anti-rape activist and yeah, listens Mick to Foley. Tori Amos. There was a song called Winter and uh, there were other songs along the way that I may have listened to occasionally, but I can't recall like any specific match or event, whereas the Tori Amos songs are really pronounced like the song itself and the you know, the ritual of listening to her music was part of the show. But we also talked to, to John Legend, to Chuck mm-hmm. D. So, so not just to the uh, to Noam Chomsky. So, I, I know that you you grew up in Philly as a as a baseball fan. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Philly, and uh, every boy in my generation has a complex of uh, failure. <laughs> the reason was the Philadelphia teams. We're in last place in every sport. And our cousins were all in New York, where the teams were all in first place and everything. So we were constantly getting uh, treated as uh, total failures. We all have inferiority complexes. Do you think growing up as a Philadelphia sports fan uh, sort of shaped why you see yourself as standing on the side of working people and the oppressed throughout the world? Is there a connection? No, I don't think so. So not just the the Kareem's and the Martinez and the Shamiqua Holds clause, because I, I really do think that one of the great things about sports is that it's the closest thing to kind of a, a national dialect that we have. And we're trying to hammer that home in the show by speaking with people who are totally like non-traditional sports talkers. So I wonder, um, you've, you've already mentioned a number of the great guests that you've had. Who's on your guest wish list? I love that question so much, partly because I obsess about it so much. <laughs> um, I mean, we've had Chuck D, we've had John Legend, we've had Martina, we've had Kareem. I really would love to have on the show, um, first of all, Billie Jean King. Billie Jean, of course, who is about to attempt to create a post-war record, her, four, her fifth Wimbledon final. I think it's important that we remember that early in the year, Billie Jean King was the victim of illness and injury. Now, this, coupled with her intense efforts to form a a women's tennis association, may, and I emphasize may, have robbed her game of some of its uh, former authority. I mean, she might be the only person in the sports world who's like my hero of all heroes, my Mm -hmm. shero of all sheroes, who I've never been able to just shake their hand and Mm -hmm. say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And and that's a blessing that it's been everybody but Billie Jean, but I want Billie Jean. (laughs) I want Billie Jean. I'm like Michael Jackson strutting on the (laughs) runway. I want Billie Jean. Well, uh, Dave, Zyron, I feel like we could probably chat about sports forever, but we have to go. But thank you so much for joining us on The Big List, and it's been a blast. Thank you. And I really want to thank you for doing this show. I am loving this podcast world that I've now been a part of just for several months, and that's it. I'm just loving. I'm loving the control that I'm able to have. I'm loving the creative aspect, and and I'm just loving the the community of podcasters who I've been meeting. So thank you so much for being part of facilitating that. Oh, God, you're welcome. And, you know, we love you back. 
Dave Zirin is the host of Edge of Sports from Panoply. If you want more sports ball in your life, head over to biglisten.org. And while you're on the World Wide Web, let us know what shows you'd like us to feature on The Big Listen. We're at biglisten at wamu.org. It's time for another break, but when we come back, we'll talk to podcast queen B Anna Sale about her listening habits. I really love listening to podcasts when I'm like on the New York City subway that are taking me somewhere completely different than my immediate environment. That's coming right up on The Big Listen. Keep it locked. This is NPR. Hi, I'm Danielle and I live in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm really enjoying Denzel Washington as the greatest actor of all time, period. You don't have to fully agree with the title to enjoy the podcast. They invite interesting guests, comedians, film directors, and musicians, and they use the Denzel Washington films to facilitate conversations about topics as diverse as interracial and intercultural dating and the changing roles of Muslim women in society. But I think the point Hollywood misses about diversity, quite frankly, is that it's not about appearance and it's not about numbers to me. It's about the diversity of thought. Yeah. Yes. I think that that is what everybody is missing. On top of all that, the hosts, W. Kamau Bell and Kevin Avery, are both comedians and successful comedy writers. So the show is damn funny. The quality of the analysis and the brilliantly devised rating system make this a great listen. I recommend the show to anyone who appreciates a good old-fashioned nerd out. Hey friends, I'm Lauren Ober and this is The Big Listen. I really want to know what's coming out of your earbuds these days. So give me your recommendation. Call the pod line 202-885-POD1. That's 202-885-7631. I want to hear your beautiful voices. Speaking of beautiful voices, our next guest could literally narrate bedtime stories for adults and make a killing. For this installment of Listen Up, the part of the show where we grill your favorite pod people, producers, reporters, hosts, about what they are listening to, I am joined by Anna Sale of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money. Since Death, Sex, and Money's breakout season in 2014, Anna has garnered just about every accolade in the biz. And she's one of few people who can say a U.S. senator saved her love life. Ms. Anna Sales, this is Alan K. Simpson in the wilds of Wyoming, former U.S. senator. This is a message I got on my cell phone. I need to talk to you about an urgent matter. Nothing life-threatening at all, I can assure you. Al Simpson is famous for being the Simpson in Simpson Bowls, that group that made recommendations about American debt a few years back. I'm a reporter and I was covering politics, but there was no reason for Al Simpson to be calling me on my personal cell phone. Anyway, give me a buzz at your convenience. I called him back. And then I was walking up Sixth Avenue in Manhattan, talking to former Senator Al Simpson about my ex-boyfriend, Arthur. In other words, Senator Alan Simpson had called to talk about my love life. This is Death, Sex, and Money. They don't get it. 
I'm dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. And need to talk about more. Money can't buy happiness. It is happiness. I'm Anna Sale. Anyway, Anna Sale, host of Death, Sex, and Money. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. So... As the host of your own show, I'm guessing you're pretty busy, you know, like making celebrities cry and stuff, um, (laughs) because that's what you seem to be doing recently. But do you actually have any time to listen to podcasts or or you just you just are working all the time? No, no, I listen a lot. I listen a lot on the subway and um, when I'm walking the dog. Okay, so uh, so what are your what are the soundtracks for your subway riding for your dog walking? Uh, what are you listening to? The the first thing I thought of is I really love listening to podcasts when I'm like on the New York City subway that are taking me somewhere completely different than my immediate environment. And um, there's a few that stick out to me as having this really kind of um, just a deep sense of place. Uh, there's a podcast called Gravy that I really like. Um, it's it's hosted by a woman named Tina Antolini, and it's produced by the Southern Foodways Alliance. And it's stories about food and Southern culture, and I just really like it. It makes me makes me takes me to places that uh, I haven't been in a long time, or to places I've never been. Lives in Leland, Mississippi, and it's voices you don't hear a lot in the podcasting space. You just don't hear a lot of Southern accents from the Southern United States. I can remember, this is funny, I remember my dad was trying to teach me how to make biscuits, and I would forget the ingredients, especially how you have to cut the shortening in there, and uh, I I would forget to do that, and and you would have to eat my biscuits when they were hot, because daddy said if they got cold, they would knock the dog out. (laughs) I also really like a smaller podcast, it's it's nice because it has a range of length. Some are like three minutes long. Some are 45 minutes, 50 minutes long. Um, and it's called Rumble Strip Vermont. And it's produced by a woman named Erica Heilman uh, who lives in Vermont and just introduces us to Vermont characters. Um, so it's got a really deep sense of place. Um, one of my favorite episodes of that podcast is, is just a profile of a small town barber who talks a lot about his time in combat in Vietnam. And it's just, a, it's just a beautiful story. I am probably as unlikely a person to have been through what I've been through as you could possibly get. I mean, I was 118 pounds, you know? I was five foot eight, and it made me a goddamn sergeant. I mean, is that stupid or what? Another one is called Home of the Brave by radio producer Scott Carrier, who This American Life fans will know his voice. His podcast kind of takes you all kinds of different places, um, but they always really feel in the place where it's happening. He did a great series in Nepal, like immediately after the earthquake in 2015, and it was voices and, uh, and, and just soundscapes that I hadn't heard in any of the media coverage that was sort of blanketing the landscape at that mm-hmm. point. So this is your home? Earthquake, yes. What is your name? Durga Shrestha. Have you been sleeping inside? No, no, no. Where do you sleep at night? Mm, we sleep in this wood. Mm. A field? With field, tents? yes. It's with, with tent. With tent? Yes, yes. And is it okay there? Or? No, no, no. It's spider here, crocodiles. Spiders. And then yes. the show Reply All is not really a sense of place in terms of physical place, but I don't think of myself as a very 
internet-y kind of person. I, I enjoy being on the internet, but... Um, <laughs> this is a story of the internet destroying someone's life completely. And it's the story of the internet transforming someone's life for the better. PJ and Alex, the hosts of Reply All, really kind of... Because their stories are so compelling, it really gives me a sense of appreciation for um, people who are internet-y and, and the incredible things that are happening in the digital space that I'm not aware of. I like that word, internet-y. Like it, it you know the of, type, you know? Sure. It does age you a little bit to say internet-y. <laughs> it's, it's like maybe what like my great aunt might say. But I like I it. don't mean... <laughs> I like it. Internet-y as like an identity, like oh, someone I, who like thinks of themselves as sure. an internet person. You know, I of definitely course. use the internet, but oh. I, I don't think of it as part of my identity. So when I think about the um, the, the podcast that you mentioned, that they're all sort of diametrically opposite of the life that you are living in New York City. That uh-huh. Do you feel like there's some sense of escapism in listening to to these podcasts about places that you are just, you are not in those places. You're not going there. You're not physically in that space. Yeah. And I also think that the, this podcasting is really, um, it really is a, a a medium for voyeurs because you get so intimately involved in the characters that you're listening to. And, and it's especially powerful when you're listening to stories of people who would never in your daily life kind of open up to you. Um, so I really, I really like that. Uh, I like, I like just just being introduced to dimensions of the human experience that aren't a part of my social life living in in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about your. What you're listening to now, um, obviously, you make a podcast yourself. Uh, what can we look forward to from uh, Death, Sex, and Money? We are our editorial meetings are really exciting right now because we are trying to frame things in terms of like what what will keep surprising us and our audience, and what will make me feel uncomfortable as an interviewer. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to just keep you know doing things that we haven't done yet which is really exciting. Well, Anna Sale, thanks so much for giving us the hot scoop on what you're listening to these days and uh, and what's up with Death, Sex, and Money. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. It was fun. To find out more about Death, Sex, and Money, check out biglisten.org. It's got the links. We have almost reached the end of this week's episode. No, say it ain't so. But before we let you go, it's time for C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. Well, this week's 289 is a show called Throwing Shade. Its tagline is a weekly podcast taking all the issues important to ladies and gays and treating them with much less respect than they deserve. Can you handle it? Take that for what it's worth. It is hosted by... Feminasty Aaron Gibson. I'm homosexual Brian Safi. And they are two comedians um, who seem to be pals, and they have a very long show. It's about an hour and a half uh, running time, maybe an hour and 45 minutes, where they basically are just like best pals gas bagging about whatever is happening in their lives. So so maybe they're talking about going perfume shopping. And I go, oh, this is really like um, 
like spicy what's in it. And she said two words that I can't believe are in a perfume and I can't believe someone has dared to say to me with a straight face. Or going to see the Beyonce show. How's a working girl supposed to get to Beyonce on time? Honestly. There was so much traffic, it shut down Echo Park and the concert started 45 minutes late so that people could at least get to their seats. Yeah. But then they also talk about some serious stuff like they they hit on some news topics. Did that amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat come through or she, what? Hillary Clinton was giving us full the office looks right in the camera <laughs> and I was eating up every second. But basically they're just two funny people having chit chats with each other about things that entertain them. So if you are fans of these folks, if you are into hearing people who are like, basically like Will and Grace, you know, like talk about their lives, um, you know, maybe Throwing Shade is a podcast for you. So Throwing Shade, 289 this week. Hey, congratulations on making it almost to the end of the show. Hope you liked it. If you did, how's about subscribing to it? Go ahead, I can wait. And while you're at it, we'd love a little review from you. Or a big review. Whatever kind of review you want to give us, we don't care. And as always, we love listener feedback. So drop us a tweet at HearBigListen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. Or send us some electronic mail at BigListen at WAMU.org. If you're feeling sort of vintagey, you could pop a little note in the U.S. mail Recently, we got the most amazing postcard from a secret anonymous listener telling us that he or she missed the show. Well, I missed you too, friend. Now we're back. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston. I, Lauren Ober, barely bothered to show up. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to Beck Feldhouse Adams, Lion Tamer in Chief. Also, virtual high fives to Anya Grunman, Izzy Smith, Steve Nelson, Mathilde Piard, and the entire NPR posse. The Big Listen is the brainchild of Andy McDaniel and JJ Yore and is a production of WAMU and NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now, a final word from our show's youngest guest, Nate, the host of the show about science. Um, Nate, I'm so excited that we get to have you on our show. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when do I get to be on your show? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what you're supposed to say is, Lauren, you're not a scientist, so you can't be on my show because you don't know anything about science. No, it was, I was just thinking of a of a day. Oh, of a day. <laughs> so at the end of our show, we always say, keep listening, America. Can you say, keep listening, America, for me, Nate, please? Keep listening, America. Yes, yes, you nailed it. That is so good. I love that. This is NPR. NPR.